Uh, and in the meantime as well, feel free to turn your Bibles to the book of Titus in chapter 2, which is where we'll be this morning. One greeting I failed to give to you uh, this morning as well is Merry Christmas. This is our first Sunday together since Christmas, so I apologize for that. Merry belated Christmas to you all, uh, as we are in fact concluding our Christmas series, our Advent series uh, that we've been looking at, especially concerning the kingdom. And uh, you might remember as we began this series, uh, we were taking a look at uh, the king is coming. Uh, That is how, uh, looking at through the Old Testament passages, looking forward uh, to the promised king, especially through Micah chapter 5. And then we looked at how the king has come, what it means that Christ has come, what that that means for his reign, what that means uh, to look at him as a king. And then last Sunday, we looked at uh, the king is coming again, uh, looking at what it means to look forward and expectation uh, to Christ and all that, uh, that, that consummation, that fulfillment, all that that means. Well, this morning, you know, after we've kind of taken a look at that layout, you know, from the king is coming to the king is coming again, getting a look at, at the land, if you will, of the reign of Christ, we're really going to be entering into that this morning, that what it means to be living in the kingdom. We discussed how, uh, you know, Christ, he has inaugurated, he has begun his kingdom at his first coming. And then we are looking forward to that future, uh, complete fulfillment of that at his return. But now we are living in this time, the, the already and the not yet. And so what does that mean for us? How do we live? How does that impact the relationships that we have, and all that goes on with it. So again, if you haven't already, turn to Titus chapter 2, and would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, an act of uh, submission to God. As you're from Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 2 of chapter 3. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's pray. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Lord, would you open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts to receive from you what you desire for us to know, for us to believe, and for us to carry out in obedience, Lord. God, we pray that you might glorify your holy name this morning as we humbly submit to your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in case my glasses didn't give it away, I have poor eyesight. I have bad vision. I am nearsighted, meaning things that are very close I can see all right, but things that are even a bit further away, I have a hard time. Uh, 
they're quite blurry. Um, I have worn contact lenses since I was in middle school. So if you don't see me wear my glasses because I'm wearing contact lenses. I had contact lenses on growing up because I played sports and glasses were very cumbersome for me to wear while I was playing sports. Well, in high school, I played basketball. And there was one particular game where, over the course of the game, I had my eye poked and my contact lens fell out. It would happen periodically. Well, this contact lens I couldn't find. I mean, wouldn't you know it, a contact lens being difficult to find. It's small, it's clear, and now I can't see out of one eye. It is nearly impossible, like a cruel joke, honestly, to try to find a contact lens. I don't know if it's stuck to the bottom of someone's shoe or what, but it couldn't be found. So I went on playing with just one good eye, obviously affecting my overall vision, affecting my depth perception greatly. Again, needless to say, I did not play very well that game. I could you know, function okay. I knew where I was supposed to be, and, and there were some things that I could, I could figure out uh, fairly well, but, but I wasn't nearly as aggressive as I normally would have been. I didn't have the same confidence, especially with my shot. I didn't shoot nearly as often that game as I would many other games. And I could function okay and not look like an idiot out there or someone who was half blind, but I was greatly hampered by not being able to see the ball well, by being able to see my teammates well, or the opponents. Knowing and seeing where we are in relation to people around us and to the job at hand significantly affects not only our actions, but our thinking. Clear vision gives us greater confidence to go out and carry out the responsibilities that we may be called to do, something which, during this basketball game, I was lacking. I didn't have that confidence because I couldn't see well. These last, uh, last few weeks have hopefully given us greater clarity concerning how we see Christ's kingdom, what that means, what that is. And this morning, we're going to be taking a look, a closer look at what it means for us as Christians to be living in that kingdom, which has already begun and been inaugurated in the coming of Christ, yet will not be fully realized and fulfilled until he comes again. What what does it really mean to be living in this kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, in the already and not yet? What does it mean for the one who is struggling with their relationships, whether at home or at school or in church or at work? Does it speak to that? Or does it mean for the one who is battling health issues, physical health, mental, emotional health, spiritual health? What does it mean for the one who is living in a world of political hostility, opponents to Christians? This text speaks to that. Seeing where we fit in the historical redemptive timeline, the the big picture of Christ's kingdom, it helps us to realize how we ought to see others around us, people, institutions, all things. Namely, what we're going to be seeing is that because Christ, the King, has brought salvation for all people, let us live in the present age by showing courtesy to all people. First thing that we notice, though, is 
is what this salvation is in the present age, in the time in which we live. Back in the text in chapter 2, verses, uh, look at verse 11. The first thing that we'll see is that it is a salvation that is for all people. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Simply put, this is the message of Christmas right here in a nutshell. In this one little verse, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There was this appearing, this manifesting, something which took place and affected everything around it. Namely, the coming of Christ and the ministry of Christ. Paul is using this he says that the grace of God has appeared. Paul is actually using a word that is very heavy with theological meaning. It's just not the idea of something just showing up. There is a, it is a very rich word, and Paul is drawing on this, this deep picture that's taking place. The word is often translated in the New Testament as to, to give light to, to shine forth. In Luke 179, it says, to give light to those who sit in darkness. It's the same word, the sharing, the showing of light. But that's not the only way that it's used. Actually, the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was often used to describe the reality that it is God himself who has come. Because here we read it is the grace of God that has appeared. It was often used to describe very presence of God himself. And in Genesis chapter 35, you might remember the story with, with Jacob and Esau, how after Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright and his blessing, that Esau responded with a bit of anger and hostility and sought to kill Jacob. So Jacob was, was fleeing for his very life, and he fled to Badan Aram, where uh, his uncle Laban lived. But as he is fleeing for his life in this time of, of darkness, leaving behind his family, leaving behind all that, that, that he has known. It says that on the journey, on the way, that God had appeared to him. He had a dream, the, the, the dream, the, the vision of the, the angels ascending and descending from heaven. And it said that Jacob named that place Bethel, meaning the house of God. It says in Genesis 35, verse 7, that he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Describing a time when Jacob was in darkness and fleeing for his life, God shone forth a light. He appeared. I believe that Paul is using this very suggestive term to describe the, the dawning of the light of the gospel of God to a dark world. The birth of Christ is not only a, a manifestation and appearing of God incarnate, fact that God has come, but also of what Christ has brought with him in his incarnation. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. He has inaugurated his kingdom of righteousness and justice and grace. This is the Advent message. This is the Christmas message that Christ has come and he has brought salvation for all people. Even that, that phrase there, for all people, Again, that's it's a weighty thing to, to look at. Brought salvation for all people. But that's what the angel said. 
Remember, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In Luke 2.10. What does he mean by, by all people? Is he referring to every single individual that has ever lived? Look at that, that context. Look back in your Bibles at Mark chapter 2. What is he really saying? If you look at the previous paragraph, verses 1 through 10, Paul here is, is distinguishing between the, the type of people that there, that there were in the world that were there, especially to the church at Crete, to whom, where Titus is ministering. Speaking of older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and verse 9, bondservants as well. But all of the, the categories, if you will, that, that, that Titus was, was dealing with there in Crete, where he was giving them specific charges, specific areas of obedience that they were called to. And the reality is that Christ has come, the grace of God has come, transcending all earthly distinguishing factors. It transcends all aspects of age, gender, class, race, all of it. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It is not something which depends on your age. It's not something which depends on your class. It is not something which depends on your gender. Salvation has come for people everywhere, all people. Salvation which is here is not merely for one nation or one group over people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Salvation is for all people where you do not have to be a son of Levi to have access to the throne room of God. Salvation is for all people where you are not limited in worship by your ethnicity or gender like at the temple in Jerusalem. The cross is the great equalizer where all are called to bow before the feet of the king. The kingdom has come. Salvation is here. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. But this is also a salvation, Paul says, that, that sanctifies us. It says there in verse 12 that it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Life in the present age means living in the great salvation which sanctifies us and trains us in holiness. This is what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was all about. When Jesus was, was preaching near the beginning of his, of his earthly ministry there at the, the, the Mount, how to live in the kingdom which Christ has brought in, this present age. He calls us to forgive others, to be salt and light. He teaches us how to pray and much more. What it means to live in the kingdom of God. And Paul summarizes how we ought to live in the present age as both a, notice here, a positive and a, a negative action. So notice that they're saying, saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Instead, pursuing self-control, pursuing uprightness, pursuing godliness. All that is to say that, that kingdom life, living in this already and not yet, is not a, a laid-back life. It is not a coasting through until we get to the end when we will see, when we will see Jesus. 
that there is work which Paul is calling on the people here to put forth. This putting away and putting on. It is a constant battle of the spirit versus the flesh. The grace of God, he says, is even training us for the battle being waged. I can't help but have images of Mickey, the trainer from Rocky here, as he would train Rocky, you know, chasing a chicken and doing all kinds of goofy things. He was training him for the fight that was coming up. The reality is that the grace of God trains us for the battle being waged within our souls of the flesh and the spirit, but also because we are fighting a world which opposes kingdom living. Often when Paul speaks about the present age, he's oftentimes just not merely talking about a time period. He's often referring to the evil and wickedness of the present age around them. Yet the grace of God is doing a work in those to whom salvation has been brought so that they would be a light against the dark backdrop of the present evil age and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Notice even that also, self-controlled, dealing with the self, upright, dealing with our, uh, how we interact with others, our reputation before others, and godly, doing the reflection of God's character the wholeness of man, ourselves toward others and toward God. This is the salvation of the present age, one which is for all people and causes us to grow in holiness and to grow in godliness. Paul said on Mars Hill that God calls all people everywhere to repent. The salvation of this age does not leave us standing idly by to fit in with the present age, to fit in with the world around us. The kingdom of Christ is opposed to the kingdoms of this world. In fact, in Psalm 2, it says that, that Christ laughs in derision at the kingdoms of this world, scoffs at them. Let's not be unaware of what salvation on this side of the cross what salvation on this side of the return of Christ, what it looks like. But he doesn't just want to remind them what the salvation is, but again, goes into greater detail of what our response is then to that, knowing where we live, knowing this great salvation. We are to be waiting in the present age. The first thing he, he draws on that we are waiting for our blessed hope. Look there in verse 13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's so much, there's so much ink has been spilt on just this one little verse. Uh, I mean, just notice how it even describes as Jesus as God. It talks about the, the glory of his coming. There's so much that is here. But living in this present age is not simply a looking back to God's grace being revealed it is not merely a reflecting on the birth, on the, the life, on the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But living in the present age also means that there is a looking forward as well. A waiting for what is to come. There is a life of anticipation. One time that I definitely felt the 
the weight of, of anticipation, looking forward for something to be realized, was years ago while Chrissy and I were living in Wyoming, and we went on a trip to her brother's wedding in Florida. And this trip was a brutal one. We flew standby, thinking that we were going to be saving some money flying standby, and in that end, we did. But after we arrived to Florida, we had some, um, some, a, a rough time with, with car rental and a rough time with taxi cabs where the, the money started going up and up for this trip that we were trying to save money on. And then after we got there, the wedding was, uh, was, was done. We were going to be heading back home. We got back to the, to the Miami airport to fly back to Denver. Again, flying standby. And we get to, to, to Miami. The flights were all overbooked. We couldn't leave. So we were stuck in Miami. We had to spend the night there. The next day, the flights were all booked as well. So then we had to take a shuttle to Fort Lauderdale to try to get out of Fort Lauderdale. It was all booked up there as well. We then had to take a train to go to West Palm Beach. It was like the amazing race, but not any fun at all. We had to go to West Palm Beach. And then we had to take a taxi to get to the airport there. And we missed the flight that we would have been able to make it on, but we were there just about five minutes too late. And so we had to wait for one that was flying out that evening. And we finally got out of the state of Florida to the praise and glory of God, uh, only for us to return years later to live there. Um, <laughs> but we were very much so looking forward to, to returning home uh, Christy actually even had to miss a day of work because of it, because of, of how much time that ended up taking, and it was really no fun at all. Looking forward in anticipation of, can we please, never thought I would have said, can we please get back to Wyoming? Really, Wyoming? But we wanted to, we wanted to leave Florida to get to Wyoming, so desperate for it. Well, Romans chapter 8 gets at this very clearly in describing actually how creation is waiting in anticipation for its freedom, for its corrupt, uh, from its corruption. And adding that not only creation, but says that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That our, our blessed hope, Referred to it here in Titus 2, in, it is Christ. And with him he brings the fulfillment of our adoption as heirs and sons. And the brokenness of our bodies of sin will be no more as we are given glorified bodies which worship God in fullness. And the very next verses in Romans go on and say, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience it says waiting for it with patience i think there's one of two things maybe that i think we can oftentimes not do well waiting well and being patient well are we so comfortable in this life that we really don't have much of a longing to see Christ's return. Is there no tension to our waiting? I'm fine. God, just come whenever you're ready. Have we lost the glory of Christ? 
and all that his return means. Maybe the opposite is true. Our patience is wearing thin. We look at the world around us. We look at our own lives and we say, God, what is taking so long? I'm ready for my pain to end. I'm ready for my struggles to cease. I'm ready for the tragedies and the heartbreak all around me to simply stop. I can't take it anymore. God, what are you doing? Are you not good? Can I not trust you, God, with this world? Are we waiting for it with patience? Alicia Atkins uh, writer, she said this. She said that waiting has turned out to be a holy work. She says, we don't learn endurance without it. And without endurance, we have no hope. With hope, however, we disarm despair. But when we welcome waiting as heaven's instrument, when we don't simply endure it, but mine its riches, we become a God-assured, God-satiated, and God-led people, radiant and readied for our King. In waiting, God is producing a work in you for his glory, producing endurance, producing hope, producing character, And that's what kingdom living is, character, endurance, and hope. Then he goes on and and reminds us who this one is that we are waiting for. This one who has redeemed and who purifies us. Who gave himself for us, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We are reminded of who's coming and who we are waiting for. The one who has redeemed us and who purifies us, knowing we are waiting for such a one, ought to spur us on to good works. Christmas is a time when we can perhaps have our highest kind of ought-to mentality? How many people did you give a gift to for Christmas that you only gave to them because you felt obligated to have to give it to them? There's an oughtness for it. I see people looking around. <laughs> is it not that having an ought-to mentality is completely absent in our zeal for God? Is there, is there, there no room for that? It's not so much that it ought to be completely absent, but that it should go beyond that. That our zeal for God should go beyond a simply, well, I ought to because I guess I have to. It goes beyond because we do have to. Because we were created for his glory. But knowing what he has already done for us in redeeming us and what he is doing for us in purifying us. And these truths are so vital that Paul commands Titus to declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority, showing us the importance of these truths to our own Christian walk, that he was charging Titus to be stern about this. 
as we look at this hope in the present age, then leads us lastly to obedience in the present age. What does it mean to be obedient in this time in which we're waiting, to be obedient in this time that salvation has come to all people and which sanctifies us? How are we to be obedient in this present age? A John Frame uh, theologian famously said that theology is application. Meaning for someone to do the work of, of theology, of studying the, the attributes, the character, the promises of God, to really do theology, if you will, it means application. We can know everything there is to be known about the present age and the age to come, but real theology is application to our lives. And that's what Paul does here. Because of all this, this is what we are to do. First, he says, concerning rulers. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Tell them this because such authorities are part of God's overall order for human society. Titus, to whom Paul is writing this to, is in the island of Crete. Crete is a, a Roman province, and we know how well the Romans loved Christians during this, this first century with Nero and Trajan and others. Not exactly known for being sympathetic to Christians, yet the church in Crete was to be reminded to be submissive in attitude to their rulers and, and authorities and obedient in their actions toward them. Yet not only are Christians to be subject and to be obedient, but they are also to be ready for every good work. And with this kind of a description of what we are called to do in relationship to, uh, to the society that is around us, it extends the Christian's responsibilities from a mere passive posture of just obeying the laws and I'm doing my civic duty as a, as a member of society as long as I obey the laws that are there. And it, again, it, it extends it from merely that to an active, positive involvement in the world around you, in the society around you, being salt and light to the world around us as those who have been saved in this present age, whom God is training in godliness, who are waiting for the blessed hope. Let us pursue kingdom righteousness and kingdom justice in the spheres which God has granted to us so that our prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that would be something more than just mere words, but faith in action. But it's not just concerning authorities and rulers and society, but concerning all people, says there in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We really, we, we end the passage right where we began with a statement regarding all people. This reminder from Paul concerning how we ought to treat one another gives a lot of space here, if you notice, to, to our words, to what we say. You know, speaking evil, literally the word is to blaspheme, tearing down, being hurtful. Avoid fighting and bickering, but instead be gentle. And the final phrase is really a summary of it all, is to show courtesy. You know, power 
is something that people are oftentimes either trying to impose on others or at least give the appearance that they have lots of it and that they can if they want to. Uh, it's always interesting whenever uh, Donald Trump has an, an important meeting with some other international leader, we're always trying to dissect like every little bit of, of their interactions with each other's power struggle that's going on. You know, how are they sitting? You know, where were their, their gestures like as, as they're talking? Oh, that's a power move. That's a power play. And even the same thing, there's all this, uh, this science behind just a handshake of however your hand is, is it, it's, it's revealing something about if you're trying to dominate the other person or, or if you're subservient to the other, other person. There's all this going on apparently constantly at all times. And what we're shown here, though, is not an unnecessary display of power. What is he talking about? But a willing laying down of power is what he's describing in our interactions with others. The word courtesy is often translated as humility or meekness in the New Testament. It is translated as gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit. It's the same word. The fruit of the Spirit of gentleness. And here he just it's translated as courtesy. It is not a word of weakness, but in choosing to put aside any sense of superiority, any sense of arrogance, and choosing to treat others in a way that is consistent with what is said in those previous verses, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Since the kingdom of God has come to all people, regardless of their age, regardless of their race, their class, their gender, their personality, their personal offenses toward you, we ought to be about kingdom principles and show courtesy and gentleness to others. How often do we feel the need to flex our dominance over someone else? Maybe it's not just a physical dominance thing, but maybe it's moral superiority. It's something in the workplace of being better at a job than, than someone else and wanting to show off flex that, that muscle. Ethical superiority, knowledge or wisdom superiority, and the need to have to show it in some way and for others to see it. Do we need others to see how strong we are, how smart we are, how attractive we are, how hardworking we are, how rich we are? This mentality is not consistent with the kingdom which Christ inaugurated in which we are awaiting its consummation. But he instead calls us to be courteous to all people. The principle of the kingdom, what Christ did, laying down his own life for the sake of his friends, he says. That basketball game from high school, it was a disaster. It really was. I don't want to go back and look at the stat sheet, but it wasn't pretty. I was essentially a place filler. Seeing how I had no confidence in my shooting unless I was right under the basket. Those were the only baskets that I made that entire game were layups. My vision and how I saw my surroundings drew me away from fulfilling the talent and ability that I had. And how we see our place 
within God's grand story and where we see ourselves within the plan of salvation in Christ will greatly affect how we see God, how we see others, and how we even see ourselves. Christ has come that we might have boldness and confidence as we see God's kingdom dispel darkness and shine its light upon the world. Ephesians 3 says that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. As we leave here this morning, I would remind you that we might go forth, go out serving in Christ's kingdom, knowing that is where we are as the people of God, but go out in boldness and confidence to carry out the things which God has called us to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much for the reality of you bringing your kingdom. And Lord, even though we oftentimes wrestle with, with do we see it? Uh, Lord, we still see so much darkness. We still see so much sin. But Lord, we look forward to the day when it will be fully realized. Lord, I pray that you would give us the patience to wait for it in hope. And Lord, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to carry out, Lord, what you have called us to do in this time in which you have given to us. In Christ's name we ask it.